This is Novels and Naps, Episode 7. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Novels and Naps. I'm your host, Emily. For those of you that are new here, think of this podcast as a low-maintenance book club. I read, comment, and ramble, and you just listen. And if the book or my voice are boring, you can fall asleep, and I won't even know. It's a book club and a bedtime story. My plan is to read through selections from classic novels and provide you with some verbal annotations and whatever random commentary comes to mind. All of the text that I'll be reading will be coming from the public domain because I went to grad school twice and have too many student loans, and lawsuits are expensive. So here's your opportunity to catch up on all those classics you said that you read, but never really did. So we're still reading Jane Eyre, um, and I'm continuing to skip around, as I've mentioned. Last we left them, Rochester had decided to throw a house party and invited a bunch of wealthy friends and acquaintances over. One of them, a certain Miss Ingram, was speculated to be a potential love interest for him. And Jane had to hang out with them, and they all talked shit about governesses and the working class, and it was pretty precious. Uh, there was also singing and dancing and other amusements, including the arrival of a mysterious fortune teller who told Jane's fortune in a long and impressive ramble. But who was that fortune teller? Did I get to forget to mention? But who was that fortune teller? Did I forget to mention? Oh, yes. It was Rochester dressed in a disguise. Because, of course it was. Oh, and some guy named Mason showed up from the West Indies? Rochester becomes quite alarmed by this. Let's find out why. A stranger? No, who can it be? I expected no one. Is he gone? No, he said he had known you long and that he could take the liberty of installing himself here till you returned. The devil he did. Did he give his name? His name is Mason, sir, and he comes from the West Indies, from Spanish Town in Jamaica, I think. Mr. Rochester was standing near me. He had taken my hand as if to lead me to a chair. As I spoke, he gave my wrist a convulsive grip. The smile on his lips froze. Apparently a spasm caught his breath. Mason? The West Indies? He said in the tone of one might fancy a speaking automaton to announce its single words. Mason? The West Indies? He reiterated. And he went over the syllables three times, growing in the intervals of speaking wider than ashes. He hardly seemed to know what he was doing. Do you feel ill, sir? I inquired. Jane, I've got a blow. I've got a blow, Jane. He staggered. Oh, lean on me, sir. Jane, you offered me your shoulder once before. Let me have it now. Yes, sir, yes, and my arm. He sat down and made me sit beside him. Holding my hand in both his own, he chafed it, gazing on me at the same time with a most troubled and dreary look. My little friend, he sa said he, I wish I were in a quiet island with only you, and trouble and danger and hideous recollections removed from me. Can I help you, sir? I'd give my life to serve you. Jane, if aid is wanted, I'll seek it at your hands. I promise you that. Thank you, sir. Tell me what to do. I'll try at least to do it. Fetch me now, Jane, a glass of wine from the dining room. They will be at supper there, and tell me if Mason is with them and what he is doing. I went. I found all the party in the dining room at supper, as Mr. Rochester had said. They were not seated at table. The supper was arranged on the sideboard. Each had taken what he chose, and they stood about here and there in groups, their plates and glasses in their hands. Every one seemed in high glee. Laughter and conversation were general and animated. Mr. Mason stood near the fire, talking to Colonel and Mrs. Dent, and appeared as merry as any of them. I filled a wine glass. I saw Miss Ingram watching me frowningly as I did so. She thought I was taking a liberty, I dare say, and, return, and I returned to the library. Mr. Rochester's extreme pallor had disappeared, and he looked once more firm and stern. He took the glass from my hand. Here is to your health, minister and spirit, he said. He swallowed the contents and returned it to me. What are they doing, Jane? Laughing and talking, sir. They don't look grave and mysterious, as if they had heard something strange? 
Not at all. They are full of jests and gaiety. And Mason? He was laughing too. If all these people came in a body and spat at me, what would you do, Jane? Turn them out of the room, sir, if I could. He half smiled. But if I were to go to them, and they only looked at me coldly and whispered sneeringly amongst each other, and then dropped off and left me one by one, what then? Would you go with them? I rather think not, sir. I should have more pleasure in staying with you. To comfort me? Yes, sir, to comfort you, as well as I could. And if they laid you under a ban for adhering to me? I probably should know nothing about their ban, and if I did, I should care nothing about it. Then you could dare censure for my sake? I could dare it for the sake of any friend who deserved my adherence, as you, I am sure, do. Go back now into the room, step quietly up to Mason, and whisper in his ear that Mr. Rochester has come and wishes to see him. Show him in here, and then leave me. Yes, sir. I did his behest. The company all stared at me as I passed straight among them. I sought Mr. Mason, delivered the message, and preceded him from the room. I ushered him into the library, and then I went upstairs. At a late hour, after I had been in bed some time, I heard the visitors repair to their chambers. I distinguished Mr. Rochester's voice and heard him say, "'This way, Mason. This is your room.' He spoke cheerfully. The gay tone set my heart at ease. I was soon asleep. I had forgotten to draw my curtain, which I usually did, and also to let down my window blind. The consequence was that when the moon, which was full and bright, for the night was fine, came in her course to that space in the sky opposite my casement and looked in at me through the unveiled panes, her glorious gaze roused me. Awaking in the dead of night, I opened my eyes on her disc, silver white and crystal clear. It was beautiful, but too solemn. I half rose and stretched my arm to draw the curtain. Good God, what a cry! The night, its silence, its rest, was rent in twain by a savage, a sharp, a shrilly sound that ran from end to end of Thornfield Hall. My pulse stopped, my heart stood still, my stretched arm was paralyzed. The cry died and was not renewed. Indeed, whatever being uttered that fearful shriek could not soon repeat it. Not the whitest winged condor on the Andes could twice in succession send out such a yell from the cloud shrouding his eyrie. The thing delivering such utterance must rest its air, it could repeat it the effort. It came out of the third story, for it passed overhead, and overhead, yes, in the room just above my chamber ceiling. I now heard a struggle, a deadly one, it seemed, from the noise, and a half-smothered voice shouted, Help! 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 Three times, rapidly. Will no one come? it cried, and then, while the staggering and stamping went on wildly, I distinguished the plank and plaster. Rochester! Rochester! For God's sake! Come! A chamber door opened. Someone ran or rushed along the gallery. Another step stamped on the flooring above, and something fell, and there was silence. I had put on some clothes, though horror shook all my limbs. I issued from my apartment. The sleepers were all aroused. Ejaculations, terrified murmurs, sounded in every room, door after door unclosed. One looked out, and another looked out. The gallery filled. Gentlemen and ladies alike had quitted their beds. This is the best house party ever, guys. Did I mention it was a slumber party? It's a slumber party. Rochester invited his guests to, like, spend the night for an extended period of time, like a couple of weeks, just chilling in his giant mansion. Anyway, gentlemen and ladies alike had quitted their beds, and, oh, what is it? Who is hurt? What has happened? Fetch a light! Is it fire? Are there robbers? Where shall we run? Was demanded confusedly on all hands, but for the moonlight, they would have been in complete darkness. They ran to and fro, they crowded together, some sobbed, some stumbled. The confusion was inextricable. "'Where the devil is Rochester?' cried Colonel Dent. "'I cannot find him in his bed.' "'Hear, hear!' was shouted in return. "'Be composed, all of you, I'm coming.' And the door at the end of the gallery opened, and Mr. Rochester advanced with a candle. He had just descended from the upper story. One of the ladies ran to him directly. She seized his arm. It was Miss Ingram. "'What awful event has taken place?' said she. "'Speak! Let us know the worst at once!' 
But don't pull me down or strangle me, he replied, for the Mrs. Eshton were clinging about him now, and the two dowagers in vast white wrappers were bearing down on him like ships in full sail. All's right, all's right, he cried. It's a mere rehearsal of much ado about nothing. Ladies, keep off or I shall wax dangerous. And dangerous he looked. His black eyes darted sparks. Calming himself by an effort, he added, a servant has had the nightmare. That is all. She is an excitable, nervous person. She construed her dream into an apparition, or something of that sort, no doubt, and has taken it a fit with fright. Now then, I must see you all back into your rooms, for, till the house is settled, she cannot be looked after. Gentlemen, have the goodness to set the ladies the example. Miss Ingram, I am sure you will not fail in evincing superiority to idle terrors. Amy and Louisa, return to your nest like a pair of doves, as you are. Madames, to the dowagers, you will take cold to a dead certainty if you stay in this chill gallery any longer. And so, by dint of alternate coaxing and commanding, he contrived to get them all once more enclosed in their separate dormitories. I did not wait to be ordered back to mine, but retreated unnoticed, as unnoticed I had left it. Not, however, to go to bed. On the contrary, I began and dressed myself carefully. The sounds I had heard after the scream and the words that had been uttered had probably been heard only by me, for they had proceeded from the room above mine, but they assured me that it was not a servant's dream, which had thus struck horror through the house, and that the explanation Mr. Rochester had given was merely an invention framed to pacify his guest. I dressed, then to be ready for emergencies. When dressed, I sat a long time by the window, looking out over the silent grounds and silvered fields, and waiting for I knew not what. It seemed to me that some event must follow the strange cry, struggle, and call. No, stillness returned. Each murmur and movement ceased gradually, and in about an hour the Thornfield Hall was again as hushed as a desert. It seemed that sleep and night had resumed their empire. Meantime, the moon declined. She was about to set. Not liking to sit in the cold and darkness, I thought I would lie down on my bed, dressed as I was. I left the window and moved with little noise across the carpet. As I stooped to take off my shoes, a cautious hand tapped low at the door. Am I wanted? I asked. Are you up? asked the voice I expected to hear. My master's. Yes, sir. And dressed? Yes. Come out, then. Quietly. I obeyed. Mr. Rochester stood in the gallery, holding a light. So, Rochester decides that he needs Jane's help to cover up his lies. So, he comes and gets her at his room. Or he comes and gets her at her room. And so, on their way to wherever Rochester is taking her, the third floor, uh, she hears what she thinks is Grace Poole's own goblin laugh. Um, and so, she's a little disturbed. Um, and I'm going to skip part of that. Here, Jane, he said, and I walked around to the other side of a large bed. He's led her into a room, which with its drawn curtains concealed a considerable portion of the chamber. An easy chair was near the bedhead. A man sat in it, dressed with the exception of his coat. He was still. His head leant back. His eyes were closed. Mr. Rochester held the candle over him. I recognized in his pale and seemingly lifeless face the stranger, Mason. I saw, too, that his linen on one side and the one arm was almost soaked in blood. So something has attacked Mason. And Jane and Rochester hang out with the attacked Mason. And Rochester's like, I told you not to go there. And he's like, I thought it would be fine. I thought it would be okay. But Mason did the thing he wasn't supposed to do anyway. And apparently someone, <laughs> someone bit Mason and he's bleeding. And um, Rochester saved him. And, and it's, it's, it's long and drawn out. Anyway, Rochester decides that Mason needs to leave because he didn't want Mason there in the first place. He wasn't invited to the slumber party. And now he's doing things that's aggravating the creepy things that Rochester has in his house and he's getting attacked. So Rochester needs to get rid of him. So he calls a doctor to look after his wounds. He makes Jane sit with him and he swears them both to silence. Like, you guys can't talk to each other because I'm Rochester and I said so. 
And they're like, okay, Rochester, we won't talk to each other. I won't tell Jane what's going on is Mason's response. And Jane's like, I won't even ask. I will just be here in the creepy room with these dudes. And Jane is convinced that whatever happened um, with Mason is connected to Grace Poole because she's convinced that Grace, this uh, servant, is somehow a monster. Eventually, the guests leave and there's like a whole transition period, which I'm going to skip because it's not very exciting and someone that knows jane uh from before shows up at thornfield it's a a servant from gateshead and it's actually it's bessie's husband remember bessie the nice uh nurse lady that took care of jane when she was little um he comes to tell her that uh her cousin creepy sociopath john died possibly killed himself we're not sure and made lots of crazy mistakes and so he's dead and um mrs reed her aunt is like a nervous mess or something and has decided that she wants to see Jane and talk to her. Um, and so she sent him to come and collect her. So Jane has to go visit her family in Gateshead who ha- she hasn't seen in eight or nine years. So Jane travels back to Gateshead and sees her cousins, Georgiana and Eliza and hangs out with Bessie, the nurse who is married to the guy that came to pick her up. And Bessie's doing really well. She has a few kids, one of which is named Jane and she just had another baby and so they have like a lovely reunion and she's happy for jane because jane is doing well and jane is happy because bessie was like the one you know positive person in her childhood and so they have a nice um a nice meeting and so then jane's at the house at gateshead for about a month she had only planned to be gone for two weeks but she ends up staying for a month and she hangs out with her cousins georgiana and eliza georgiana uh is like a society person and eliza is like reclusive and strange so she has a few opportunities to talk to mrs reed and all of the conversations are super weird and i'm only going to read you part of one of them because there is some other stuff that i want to get to in this episode so she's meeting with mrs reed and mrs reed is like pretty out of it and she tells jane about this letter that she was sent by an uncle of Jane's. So when Jane was little, she was sent, uh, not Jane, Mrs. Reed was sent a letter from an uncle that I believe was related to Jane's father because um, Mr. Reed was the brother of Jane's mother. So I guess this is from her father's side. So she was sent a letter and she never showed it to Jane or did anything with it. So I'm going to read you that scene. Well, I must get it over. Eternity is before me. I had better tell her. Go to my dressing case, open it, and take out a letter you will see there. I obeyed her directions. Read the letter, she said. It was short and thus conceived. Madame, will you have the goodness to send me the address of my niece, Jane Eyre, and to tell me how she is? It is my intention to write shortly and desire her to come to me at Madeira. Providence has blessed my endeavors to secure a competency, and as I am unmarried and childless, childless i wish to adopt her during my life and i and bequeath her at my death whatever i may have to leave i am madam etc etc john Eyre, madeira it was dated three years back why did i never hear of this i asked because i disliked you too fixedly and thoroughly ever to lend a hand in lifting you to prosperity i could not forget your conduct to me jane the fury with which you once turned on me the tone in which you declared you abhorred me the worst of anybody in the world the unchildlike look and voice with which you affirmed that the very thought of me made you sick and asserted that i had treated you with miserable cruelty 
I could not forget my own sensations when you thus started up and poured out the venom of your mind. I felt fear as if an animal that I had struck or pushed had looked up at me with human eyes and cursed me in a man's voice. Bring me some water. Oh, make haste. That's my cat. Sorry. Dear Mrs. Reed, said I, as I offered her the draft she required, think no more of all this. Let it pass away from your mind. Forgive me for my passionate language. I was a child then. Eight, nine years have passed since that day. She heeded, she heeded nothing of what I said, but when she had tasted the water and drawn breath, she went on thus. I tell you I could not forget it, and I took my revenge. For you to be adopted by your uncle and placed in a state of ease and comfort was what I could not endure. I wrote to him. I said I was sorry for his disappointment, but Jane Eyre was dead. She had died of typhus fever at Lowood. Now act as you please. Write and contradict my assertion. Expose my falsehood as soon as you like. You were born, I think, to be my torment. My last hours racked by the recollection by the recollection of a deed, which, but for you, I should never have been tempted to commit. If you could but be persuaded to think no more of it, aunt, and to regard me with kindness and forgiveness. You have a very bad disposition, said she, and one to this day I feel is impossible to understand. How for nine years you could be patient and quiescent under any treatment, and in the tenth break out all fire and violence, I can never comprehend. My disposition is not so bad as you think. I am passionate but not vindictive. Many a time, as a little child, I should have been glad to love you, if you would have let me, and I long earnestly to be reconciled to you now. Kiss me, aunt. I approached my cheek to her lips. She would not touch it. She said I oppressed her by leaning over the bed, and again demanded water. As I laid her down, for I raised her and supported her on my arm while she drank, I covered her ice-cold and clammy hand with mine. The feeble fingers shrank from my touch. The glazing eyes shunned my gaze. Love me then, or hate me as you will, I said at last. You have my full and free forgiveness. Ask now for God's and be at peace. And then she dies. So now Mrs. Reed is dead. And Jane has learned that she actually did have other family that wanted her. But uh, Mrs. Reed told him she was dead. So cool. We'll get back to that later. And so she hangs out for a little bit longer. And then Georgiana goes off and gets married. And Eliza becomes a nun in France. And that's what happens to her cousins, and she never talks to them again. So after her aunt dies, Jean returns to Thornfield and has a conversation with Mr. Rochester about how he's going to be getting married soon, which Mr. Rochester goes along with that, like, oh yeah, I'm going to be getting married soon, and about how she's going to need to find a new position because they're going to send, when he marries Miss Ingram, they're going to send Adela away to school because that's what Miss Ingram was implying during the party when she stayed over during the big slumber party, house party. So... I'm going to read you the conversation that they have. Oh, and by the way, when Jane was at her aunt's, she drew a beautiful portrait of Mr. Rochester and her cousin was like, oh, who is that? Is that a person you know? And she's like, oh, no, it's just someone from my imagination, which was a lie. Anyway, here we go. Must I move on, sir? I asked. Must I leave Thornfield? I believe you must, Jane. I am sorry, Janet, but I believe indeed you must. This was a blow, but I did not let it prostrate me. Well, sir, I shall be ready when the order to march comes. It has come now. I must give it tonight. Then you are going to be married, sir. Exactly. Precisely. With your usual acuteness, you have hit the nail straight on the head. Soon, sir? Very soon. My, that is, Miss Eyre. And you'll remember, Jane, the first time I or rumor plainly intimated to you that it was my intention to put my old bachelor's neck into the sacred noose, to enter into the holy estate of matrimony, to take Miss Ingram to my bosom, in short... She's an extensive armful, but that's not to the point. One can't have too much of such a very excellent thing as my beautiful Blanche. Well, as I was saying, 
Listen to me, Jane. You're not turning your head to look after more moths, are you? That was only a lady clock child flying away home. I wish to remind you that it was you who first said to me, with that discretion I respect in you, with that foresight, prudence, and humility, which befit your responsible and dependent position, that in case I married Miss Ingram, both you and little Adele had better trot forthwith. I pass over the sort of slur conveyed in this suggestion on the character of my beloved. Indeed, when you are far away, Janet, I'll try to forget it. I shall notice only its wisdom, which is such that I have made it my law of action. Adele must go to school, and you, Miss Eyre, must get a new position." "'Yes, sir. I will advertise immediately. And meantime, I suppose. I was going to say I suppose I may stay here till I find another shelter to betake myself to, but I stopped, feeling it would not do to risk a long sentence, for my voice was not quite under command. "'In about a month I hope to be a bridegroom,' continued Mr. Rochester, "'and in the interim I shall myself look out for employment, and an asylum for you. Thank you, sir. I am sorry to give—' Oh, no need to apologize. I consider that when a dependent does her duty as well as you have done yours, she has a sort of claim upon her employer for any little assistance he can conveniently render her. Indeed, I have already, through my future mother-in-law, heard of a place that I think will suit. It is to undertake the education of the five daughters of Mrs. Dionysus of O'Gall of Bitternet Lodge, Connet, Ireland. You'll like Ireland, I think. They're such warm-hearted people there, they say. It is a long way off, sir. No matter. A girl of your sense will not object to the voyage or the distance. Not the voyage, but the distance, and then the sea is a barrier. From what, Jane? From England, and from Thornfield, and, well, from you, sir. I said this almost involuntarily, and with as little sanction of free will, my tears gushed out. I did not cry so as to be heard, however. I avoided sobbing. The thought of Mrs. O'Gall in Bitternut Lodge struck cold to my heart, and colder the thought of all the brine and foam destined, as it seemed, to rush between me and the master at whose side I now walked and cold is the remembrance of the wider ocean, wealth, caste, custom intervened between me and what I naturally and inevitably loved. It is a long way, I again said. It is, to be sure, and when you get to Bitternet Lodge, Connet, Ireland, I shall never see you again, Jane. That's morally certain. I never go over to Ireland, not having myself much of a fancy for the country. We have been good friends, Jane, have we not? Yes, sir. And when friends are on the eve of separation, they like to spend the little time that remains to them close to each other. Come, we'll talk over the voyage and the parting quietly half an hour or so, while the stars enter into their shining life up in heaven yonder. Here is the chestnut tree, here is the bench at its old roots. Come, we will sit there in peace tonight, though we should never more be destined to sit there together. He seated me and himself. It is a long way to Ireland, Janet, and I am sorry to send my little friend on such weary travels, but if I can't do better, how is it to be helped? Are you anything akin to me, do you think, Jane? I could risk no sort of answer by this time. My heart was still. Because, he said, I sometimes have a queer feeling with regard to you, especially when you are near me as now. It is as if I had a string somewhere under my left ribs, tightly and inextricably knotted to a similar string, situated in the corresponding quarter of your little frame. And if that boisterous channel and two hundred miles or so of land come between us, I am afraid that cord of communion will be snapped, and then I have a nervous notion I should take to bleeding inwardly. As for you, you'd forget me. That I never should, sir. You know impossible to proceed. Jane, do you hear that nightingale singing in the wood? Listen. In listening, I sobbed convulsively, for I could repress what I had endured no longer. I was obliged to yield, and I was shaken from head to foot with acute distress. When I did speak, it was only to express an impetuous wish that I had never been born, or never come to Thornfield. Because you were sorry to leave it? The vehemence of emotion, stirred by grief and love within me, was claiming mastery, and struggling for full sway, and asserting a right to predominate to overcome, to live, rise, and reign at last. Yes, and to speak. I grieve to leave Thornfield. I love Thornfield. I love it because I have lived in it a full and delightful life. 
momentarily at least. I have not been trampled on, I have not been petrified, I have not been buried with inferior minds, and excluded from every glimpse of communion with what is bright and energetic and high. I have talked face to face with what I reverence, with what I delight in, with an original, a vigorous, and expanded mind. I have known you, Mr. Rochester, and it strikes me with terror and anguish to feel I absolutely must be torn from you forever. I see the necessity of departure, and it is like looking on the necessity of death. Where do you see the necessity? He asked suddenly. Where? You, sir, have placed it before me. In what shape? In the shape of Miss Ingram, a noble and beautiful woman. Your bride. My bride? What bride? I have no bride. But you will have. Yes, I will, I will, he set his teeth. Then I must go. You have said it yourself. No, you must stay. I swear it, and the oath shall be kept. I tell you I must go, I retorted, roused to something like passion. Do you think I can stay to become nothing to you? Do you think I am an automaton, a machine without feelings, and can bear to have my morsel of bread snatched from my lips, and my drop of living water dashed from my cup? Do you think, because I am poor, obscure, plain, and little, I am soulless and heartless? You think wrong. I have as much soul as you, and full as much heart, and if God had gifted me with some beauty and much wealth, I should have made it as hard for you to leave me as it is now for me to leave you. I am not talking to you now through the medium of custom, conventionalities, nor even of mortal flesh. It is my spirit that addresses your spirit, just as if both had passed through the grave and we stood at God's feet equal, as we are. As we are, repeated Mr. Rochester. So, he added, enclosing me in his arms, gathering me to his breast, pressing his lips on my lips. So, Jane. Yes, so, sir, I rejoined, and yet not so, for you are a married man, or as good as a married man, and wed to one inferior to you, to one with whom you have no sympathy, whom I do not believe you truly love, for I have seen and heard you sneered here. I would scorn such a union, therefore I am better than you. Let me go. Where, Jane? To Ireland? Yes, to Ireland. I've spoken my mind and co can go anywhere now. Jane, be still. Don't struggle so, like a wild frantic bird that is rending its own plumage in its desperation. I am no bird, and no net ensnares me. I am a free human being with an independent will which I now exert to leave you. Another effort set me at liberty, and I stood erect before him. And your will shall decide your destiny, he said. I offer you my hand, my heart, and a share of all my possessions. You play a farce which I merely laugh at. I ask you to pass through life at my side, to be my second self and best earthly companion. For that fate you have already made your choice and must abide by it. Jane, be still a few moments. You are overexcited. I will be still too. A waft of wind came sweeping down the laurel walk and trembled through the boughs of the chestnut. It wandered away, away to an indefinite distance. It died. The nightingale's song was then the only voice of the hour. In listening to it, I again wept. Mr. Rochester sat quietly, looking at me gently and seriously. Some time passed before he spoke. He at last said, Come to my side, Jane, and let us explain and understand one another. I will never again come to your side. I am torn away now and cannot return. But, Jane, I summon you as my wife. It is you only I intend to marry. I was silent. I thought he mocked me. Come, Jane, come hither. Your bride stands between us. He rose, and with a stride reached me. My bride is here, he said again, drawing me to him, because my equal is here, and my likeness. Jane, will you marry me? Still I did not answer, and still I writhed myself from his grip, for I was still incredulous. Do you doubt me, Jane? Entirely. You have no faith in me? Not a whit. Am I a liar in your eyes? he asked passionately. A little skeptic, you shall be convinced. What love have I for Miss Ingram? None. And that you know. What love has she for me? None, as I have taken pains to prove. I caused a rumor to reach her that my fortune was not a third of what was supposed, and after that I presented myself to see the result. It was coldness, both from her and her mother. I would not, I could not, marry Miss Ingram. You, you strange, you almost unearthly thing, I love as my own flesh. You, poor and obscure and small and plain as you are, I entreat to accept me as a husband. 
What? Me? I ejaculated, beginning in his earnestness, and especially in his incivility, to credit his, his sincerity. Me, who have not a friend in the world, but you, if you are my friend, not a shilling, but what you have given me? You, Jane, I must have you for my own, entirely my own. Will you be mine? Say yes, quickly. Mr. Rochester, let me look at your face. Turn to the moonlight. Why? Because I want to read your countenance. Turn. There. You will find it scarcely more legible than a crumpled scratch page. Read on. Only make haste, for I suffer. His face was very much agitated and very much flushed, and there were strong workings in the features and strange gleams in the eyes. Oh, Jane, you torture me, he exclaimed. With that searching and yet faithful and generous look, you torture me. How can I do that? If you are true and your offer real, my only feelings to you must be gratitude and devotion. They cannot torture. Gratitude, he ejaculated and added wildly. Jane, accept me quickly. Say, Edward, give me my name. Edward, I will marry you. Are you in earnest? Do you truly love me? Do you sincerely wish me to be your wife? I do, and if an oath is necessary to satisfy you, I swear it. Then, sir, I will marry you. Edward, my little wife. Dear Edward, come to me, come to me entirely now, said he, and added in his deepest tone, speaking in my ear as his cheek was laid on mine, make my happiness, I will make yours. God pardon me, he subjoined ere long, and man meddle not with me. I have her, and I will hold her. There is no one to meddle, sir. I have no kindred to interfere. No, that is the best of it, he said, and if I had loved him less, I should have thought his accent and look of exultation savage. But, sitting by him, roused from the nightmare of parting, called to the paradise of union, I thought only of the bliss given me to drink in so abundant a flow. Again and again, he said, Are you happy, Jane? And again and again I answered, Yes. After which, he murmured, It will atone, it will atone. Have I not found her friendless and cold and comfortless? Will I not guard and cherish and solace her? Is there not love in my heart and constancy in my resolve? It will expiate at God's tribunal. I know my maker sanctions what I do. For the world's judgment, I wash my hands thereof. For man's opinion, I defy it. Remember this, friends. But what had befallen that night? The moon was not yet set, and we were all in shadow. I could scarcely see my master's face, near as I was, and what ailed the chestnut tree, it writhed and groaned, while wind roared in the laurel walk and came sweeping over us. We must go in, said Mr. Rochester. The weather changes. I could have sat with thee till morning, Jane. And so, thought I, could I with you. I should have said so, perhaps, but a livid, vivid spark leapt out of a cloud at which I was looking, and there was a crash, a crack, and a close, rattling peal, and I thought only of hiding my dazzled eyes against Mr. Rochester's shoulder. The rain rushed down. He hurried me up the walk through the grounds and into the house, but we were quite wet before we could pass the threshold. He was taking off my shawl in the hall and shaking the water out of my loosened hair. When Mrs. Fairfax emerged from her room, I did not observe her at first, nor did Mr. Rochester. The lamp was lit, the clock was on the stroke of twelve. "'Hasten to take off your wet things,' said he, "'and before you go, good night, good night, my darling.' He kissed me repeatedly. When I looked up, on leaving his arms, there stood the widow, pale, grave, and amazed. I only smiled at her and ran upstairs. "'Explanation will do for another time,' thought I. Still, when I reached my chamber, I felt a pang of the idea she should even temporarily misconstrue what she had seen. But joy soon effaced every other feeling, and loud as the wind blew, near and deep as the thunder crashed, fierce and frequent as the lightning gleamed, cataract-like, as the rain fell during a storm of two hours' duration, I experienced no fear and little awe. Mr. Rochester came thrice to my door in the course of it to ask if I was safe and tranquil, and that was comfort, that was strength, for anything. 
Before I left my bed in the morning, little Adele came running in to tell me that the great horse chestnut at the bottom of the orchard had been struck by lightning in the night and half of it split away. So that is a thing that happened, listeners. Many, many things happened this episode, and now Jane and Rochester are engaged. And nothing about that seems concerning in any way. So please do not be worried about the outcome of this. Everything is going to be perfectly fine. Absolutely fine. Um, And so this is where I will leave you. Thank you for listening, friends. Sleep well.